So how do you achieve financial freedom, gain wealth, and live life on your terms? That is the question, and here is the answer. I'm A.G. Osborne. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. All right. Welcome, everybody, to Cash Flow to Freedom. This episode, we are going to talk to someone who immigrated to the United States, had to jump through all the loopholes, as you can imagine, not being originally from here, and still was able to achieve financial freedom. We want to hear how he did it. I want to hear about the significant challenges that he had to go through. Talk about not even knowing or understanding a market, but we'll go into all of that. But Reed, thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks, AJ. It's much a pleasure to be on your show and have a little chat here today with your listeners. Awesome. So I think, you know, to get started, why don't we go ahead and why don't you give us a little background? You're obviously not from the United States. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up here now and how you achieved this financial freedom? Long story, but I will try and keep it as short as possible. Uh, my background, uh, I'm, I'm trained as a structural engineer, went to sort of university for in Australia. Uh, back, I graduated back in 2007. And like most of Australians, we, we, it's in our DNA to go and explore the world. Australia is very much an island down under by itself. You know, New Zealand's down there, but not, not a whole lot other. So when I came to graduate university, I, I immediately went overseas. I went to move to London. And I worked as a structural engineer on the 2012 Olympic Games for about a year. And then I went to the south of France, had a bunch of fun working on some mega wealthy yachts and, and mega wealthy owners. And at that point, I, I met my uh, my now wife, but then girlfriend, Erica, who, who was American. And uh, well, I, we continued our separate ways and, and we went backpacking and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And I, I went back to Australia in 2009 and um, was really sort of after two years of being abroad, I, I was back at a cubicle and I didn't know what to do with myself, was in the engineering job, but it really felt like I had a lot more to give. And I, you know, the real thing for me is that I just spent two years abroad uh, having an incredible time, met sort of the girl of my dreams. She was in America. I was in Australia and I, I just didn't see myself working for the next 40 years in a cubicle. And, and that's where I stumbled across the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that sort of opened my eyes to the world of entrepreneurship. And through, from that, I was going to real estate networking events in Australia. I started saying, I've got the bug. I've got the real estate bug. And, um, but I also had a bug to, to live abroad again. I really enjoyed New York City. I really wanted to be with, with Erica, who, who was American. And then, as I said, and, I, and in 2012, I, I quit my job in Australia and moved halfway across the world to the Big Apple. And yeah, just had no, 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 nothing else besides the, the, back, the shirt on my back and, and I, you know, the hunger and the desire to make it happen and, and take that next step in my, my, my career. And uh, I didn't have a job here. I pounded the pavement. I had to get a visa. I had to do all the things. And from that, I was able to get a job, get get the visa, get get an apartment. And the, the rest is history, as they say. But there's a lot in, else in there that we can go into that I'm sure your listeners will find pretty, pretty valuable so, stuff. Give me a time frame. How sure. old were you when you ended up in America? And how old are you now? So I am, I moved here in 20, early 2012. So I think I was 26. I'm now 33. Your financial freedom journey in America is it's fairly new. You did that fairly quickly. And did you, yes. you move to the Big Apple, New York? Are you still there? And is that where you started your real estate journey or? Yeah, so that's where I started my real estate journey. I'm no longer there. I, my Erica, she's from LA. So we, we, we now live in LA and we're living here for the last five years. So the first two years since, you know, 2012, 2013, and early 2014, I've relocated to LA. So I spent two years in New York. The rest of the last five years we've been here in LA. And um, yeah, but to, for the real estate journey, just 
when I first moved to the United States, I had obviously been doing a bit of self-education back in Aussie, was going to pull the trigger on a flip or a lease option or something, but really wanted the desire to move to, to the States. Did that instead. So didn't have a lot of money left to my name. But within two weeks of being fresh off the boat, I was at my first RIA, you know, Real Estate Investor Association event in New York City. And I thought Aussie had a good set of networking. This was networking on steroids. And, and I really learned quickly that I didn't have the investing lingo that needed to cut it here, in, you know, in the States. And, and particularly New York, right? New York is just 10x what I'd come from in Australia. So really had to quickly get myself up and up and running and learning. But the big thing I learned when I first moved here was these secondary and tertiary markets you guys have that you could buy properties for less than a hundred thousand bucks and they cash flowed. Like that blew my mind. And and I was able to, I think I bought my first property all cash because, you know, coming fresh off the boat, I didn't have credit. I didn't even know what a credit score was. Banks weren't lending to me, but you you guys here in America had the, like these properties for $50,000 that could cash flow. And I was like, oh my gosh, the barriers to entry here in the United States are so much lower than they are in Australia. So I knew that I was quote unquote in the land of opportunity. So I went and tried to take some opportunity and I knew that I wouldn't be able to get to deal number 10 without doing that first deal. And that was really what got me off the, you know, off to the races and, 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 and that's what got me started. Okay. That this makes me excited. So tell me about this first deal. This is just awesome. You you don't have credit. You're working. You're saving your money. You're putting your savings to work. And you're going into a market that not only do you not really understand, but until a certain point, you didn't even know existed. You didn't even know that you could do this type of investing. You show up in America. You're in New York. And you're like, well, okay, these prices are obviously really high. And these guys are building skyscrapers. But there's a whole other region of market that I could get my foot in the door, which is, yep. I, I think a lot of people, they look at it and they're like, I either I don't have enough, whatever that may be, money, time, I, you know, time anything, knowledge, and my market isn't good, right? We hear this all the time. So you just said, ignore all of that. And I'm going to go do this first deal. And where was it? Syracuse, New York. So and just for your listeners out there, the comparison with Australia is that our market is like the New York cities, the San Francisco's, the LA's very high end, well, not high end, but high appreciation, low cash flow. We have what's called negative gearing in Australia. And that's, that's a cool thing. You know, <laughs> we won't get into negative gearing, but there's no cash flow. It doesn't, doesn't exist. But so I had a little bit of money. I think I had 30 or 40,000 bucks that I'd saved from working as a professional. I was still continuing to save. And I was like, okay, well, where can I drive to within sort of four hours that I could get started? Um, so you talk about knowing markets. I didn't know Syracuse and I didn't know what Section 8 housing was, but I found this these great little opportunities on, on paper. They were fantastic. And so it was with a four hour drive, I could get there by a train or I could just hire a car and go for the weekend or you know, have to travel up overnight. And it was, I vividly remember riding the subway, reading a book about starting to invest in small multifamily. I understood the math, you know, I'm an engineer, math comes easy to me. Okay, income, expenses, NOI, boom, cash flow, boom, understood all that. You know, it was now more about going and developing the team, seeing, you know, looking at properties, what, what, what's the risk here? Um, and really trying to understand the Section 8 housing market. And I, I sort of draw the comparisons and similarities to being reading my nose in a book, reading, 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 reading. And, and, and I've been doing this for probably two years now because remember, I picked up the book with Rich Dad Porter back in early 2010. So it'd been a lot of self-education. It wasn't just like I moved to America and I was like, boom, let's go. I'm here. It was like I'd already had the ball was already rolling 
in Australia, I, I started to self-educate and it was just sort of the momentum kept going here in the United States. But it's like reading about working out. You don't lose weight by reading about it. You got to go and freaking do it. Right? You got to go through the gym doors and get on the treadmill. So I needed to get on the treadmill. I found this little market. It was affordable. It was within drive. And it's sort of that, that was all that it needed to be for me at that stage. Because again, I wasn't going to just continue reading about it. I need to go take action. And so went out there, bought the property all cash, put a little bit of money into it, um, developed a, a, a relationship with a local bank. Because again, remember the big four banks or the big banks wouldn't lend to me. And over a period of like six months, I was depositing rental checks into this bank account and showing this, this, this bank that, hey, I, it works. Can I get a bit of out of the, I think I was all in for 50,000 bucks. Can I get, you know, a line of credit for 25,000 or $30,000 and I could buy deal number two. And so six months later, I'd done that and bought another duplex. Uh, but I quickly realized that Section 8 housing is pretty it's, it's, it's a difficult game if you don't know what you're doing, particularly being an Australian. I had a property manager, but I didn't understand looking back on it that, okay, this property manager manages hundreds of properties, little properties like mine. And I was on, I only owned two out of the hundreds that he owned. So was I probably getting a lot of his attention? Probably not. And, and so was he putting the best rent, renters into my properties? Eh, probably not. <laughs> so I learned quickly that if you're going to make the, that, sort of we'll call it section eight work again it can work it does work i've seen a lot of people do it you've got to go with the scale and that's you know coming in buying four five six seven assets at once um, that are all 30 to 50 or sixty thousand bucks so you can divert you can manage or mitigate the risk over over a larger base so i had i had a drive-by shooting at my first ever property i bought after six months of ownership <laughs> i realized quickly that that section eight housing tenants didn't get on so we had to evict that person and that then, then two of the units sat, sat vacant for three, four months. And I was, you know, you know, I was still covering the mortgage, but I was like, this is not, this is not working, you know, like, but I got the second property and the second property was another duplex for about $50,000. Again, low cost housing, but they paid it on time. It was like an ATM every month, 1200 bucks, 1200 bucks, 1200 bucks. But it wasn't getting me to that scale that I needed to, because I was still working full time. I was, had these couple of little properties and okay, great. You know, pat on the back, good on your read. You got yeah. maybe 800 bucks a month in cash flow, which is nothing to sneeze at, but it yeah. wasn't going to break me out and just be financially free. So yeah. from that, I had to up my game. And, 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 and at that same stage, I just acquired a lot, another little cheap property in Philadelphia to do a flip on because I thought, okay, well, this is, this is sort of the slow and steady, steady race over here with a small multifamily. It's putting a little bit of money in my pocket, but I need, a, I need to get some, some dollars going quickly. You know? And that's what I thought, oh, let's get, let's get housing, flipping houses a crack. And, I, and again, I'm a structural engineer. I did all the, all the drawings and all the engineering drawings on the property. But again, I had, I had issues. I had my, my GC, you know, started stealing stuff from me. I had to fire him. You know, the property took too long to, to build, you know, and I lost a bit of money personally, but my investors, which was my dad, um, I made sure he was made whole and, and got his interest. But it was my first putting my toe into raising, raising money from other people and using other money to get involved in, in real estate. And at the same time, I had a, had a meeting with a, a friend of mine who came down from Canada and, and, and he said, uh, you know, I was, I was boasting to say, oh, look, I've, I've, I've done, you know, all these properties. Um, you know, three of them, uh, but still working full time, but hadn't achieved financial freedom. He said, look, Reed, that's bloody fantastic. I just, I just closed on a 70 unit deal in Canada. And I said, what the, how'd you close on 70 units? So he said, I said, seven zero. He said, not seven, seven zero. I said, yeah, seven zero. And he told me about a mentor. He told me about how he got, you know, seller carryback financing, all these things that I'd heard before. And 
he was able to pull a little bit of money together from friends and family and went and you know closed on a I think a 1.2 million dollar deal and was applying the same strategy that I was applying on the small multis, which was go in there, spend five, six, seven, ten thousand bucks doing up the unit and then charge 150 dollars more in rent. That was just it, but he was doing it on a larger scale, and and that's when I really understood the scale of commercial real estate versus resi. Um, I wasn't going to get to where I needed to go by sticking and, and, and just keeping, you know, trying to put two or three properties in a year. I wasn't going to get to that financial freedom quick enough. And so I had to make the transition into, into commercial multifamily. And that's, that's how I really got started. So, so yeah. yeah, that's, you know, tends to be a pathway that a lot of people take, including us. I got started in commercial because we bought small, like, you know, storage facilities, right? But they were so small that it, it was nice, like it, like you said, you know, you, you're getting some passive income, but between me, my partners, everybody, there was no way that that was stopping. I was, you know, I had to do sales and there was no way that was continuing. We really found out quickly in order to do this, we, we have to do this at scale and we have to buy a lot bigger and a lot more. And I find this with everybody. Most people though, they don't go to that next step. So I found like, first, first of all, people don't go to the first step. They don't even ever go buy that home. <laughs> right? They don't learn, right. which the small ones is how you figure out how to do big ones. And two, I think gain confidence. It was for us. It's how we learned operations. It's how we learned the basic economics of it. We learned the industry. You find those partners, you find out what makes good ones and bad ones, right? You have to, you have to pay for that education and time and energy and everything else. And you, you need to fail small, not big, I think for most people. So I, I love that that pathway, the trajectory. But how did you go to this next step? You talk about you have these three. What was the big one? Did you just light on and, oh, okay, going to go ask somebody and somebody gave you, you know, three million bucks and you went and bought a big unit? I mean, how did you go from the small units to a big one? Easy said than done, right? And so the big thing that I took out of meeting with my mate who came down from Canada and told me about the 70 units was the mentor piece of it. He was able to, he stumbled across a mentor, was wanting to get involved in real estate and they had the track record. And so thus, I needed to take the same, um, you know, I'm very, I think one of the skills I've got is I'm very good at observing other people, deconstructing it and putting it back together in my own way, in my own abilities. And so I thought, okay, that's, yeah, you're right. I, I've already felt that I was getting to the end of my tether just with those three little properties because the, the banks weren't lending to me. It was just a lot of time with flipping a house and working full time and girlfriends on this, you know, having a girlfriend on the side. So trying to live in New York city. Cause I had to travel between that and Philly. So really needed that, that coach and that, that mentor. And that's where I, I went out and seek that because what I lacked was the credibility side of it. And if I was going to take that next step, I needed the credibility aspect covered. So where I could focus on maybe just one thing. And that was, and, and, and what in hindsight is developing my networking brand and, and my investor database and so I could then focus on the one thing rather than having to do, okay, I've got to find the deal. I've got to get the money for it. I've got to, you know, make sure I'm raising the right, you know, do, raising the right investors. And, and so that was really where I got the mentor. He showed me the path for the first six to 12 months. And, and I was able to do a few deals with him. And through that, I was able to build that credibility, build my brand, attract capital, attract investors through my, my story and my education platform. And from that, I was able to go out and do it on my own and then scale. Uh, we now have, uh, I co-founded Wildhorn Capital and we now have 1,700 units under management, $150 million. And um, as I said, I moved here in 2012. So, you know, if I can do it as an Aussie moving halfway across the world, so can the people probably listening to the show, they can get off the fence and, and give it a crack. So, yeah. First of all, your story is just awesome. 
it's really encouraging for people to hear. And two, there's such such similarities. As you know, you have your own podcast when you're interviewing people. And one of the biggest ones that I, I found is right there, it's the mentor, right? We all go through this, whether it's one individual. One of the things that we did is we applied ourselves to large associations and we hooked up with people that were just, they were killing it in the industry. And you have to learn things that you don't know how. And, and books and things are great to start out, right? But there's circumstantial-based walking through. You need help. Right. Investing in wealth is not created on an island. You need <laughs> people to rent from you. You need investors. You need banks. You need education. You need knowledge. And that, for us, that has been the absolute key to our success. We, I had no quorums, and my partners had no quorums. We went and asked for help from everybody we could. We went and learned. We joined all these groups and associations, and we started working with financial partners, other partners to do development things that we didn't have experience in or doing, and raising money. It's this cultivating of resources. You seem to have done a very, very good job because this cultivating of resources allowed you to build a product to scale to get to this point. Now, as you're scaling, though, people go through a process where they transition through their assets. What are you buying today in comparison to where you started? How, how is your model? You've got this mentor, right? He's helping you learn. You start, you put together this group where you're obviously managing your properties. You're acquiring them. You're self-managing or not self. Your group is managing them. Did the product type change or did you find a niche that you stuck in? How did that evolve to where you are now? Yeah, so the the evolution has just gone from, it's always been multifamily, just gone from the triplex that I first ever bought in upstate New York for 38,000 bucks to now buying, we just closed on a 350 unit deal in Austin, Texas last week or two weeks ago. So um, for 46 million bucks, like there's, the, the, the product type hasn't changed, it's just the size of the, of the product. But to what you just said then, the cultivation of, of experience and, and expertise, I'm sitting here not telling everyone that I knew it all. I didn't know it all. I, I, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I have a very much black and white brain. I didn't know about this whole branding stuff and going out and creating a platform and a podcast and blah, 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 and attracting investors and having a good pitch, all that sort of stuff, because that matters, right? And that's how you're going to attract people into your sphere. And then also, there was also the, the sort of, and that's the variability part of it, right? That's the, in, in an equation, that's people, your brand, your, your story, your mission, that's the variability. The constant is really the how-to, how to underwrite, how to go close on a deal, how to go find bank financing, how to go inspect a property. They seem like a lot of steps, but at the end of the day, they're all the same bloody thing, you know? So yeah. you, you go out and you, got to, you learn that constant and that's what the, the, the mentors are probably there for. And then from that, you're able to go and use that as a launching pad to go and build your variability in terms of what you're going to talk about and how you're going to attract people. Because at the end of the day, this, this business of syndication, which is what I'm in, the product is multifamily. People invest in me first and foremost. You know, the deal is sort of kind of secondarily. And then, we, you know, you've got to build that credibility. You've got to build that trust and transparency with your investors. And that doesn't happen overnight. And, and no one listening, hopefully, to this show will... It's all talking about, oh, yeah, we just did this, this and that, and one foot led in front of the other, and all of a sudden, yeah, you did seven years' time and thumbs up. It was a lot of bloody hard work, a lot of weekends. It's that iceberg effect where you can see the top is success, but there was failures underneath. There was a lot of grind. And by no means have I I've arrived. I haven't arrived. I've still got a lot more to learn, and I'm still going to continue to learn as, a, as, as now a, I, I manage people's money, and I make sure we have an incredible portfolio, and I'll continue to do that. And, you know, to your other point is, you know, what are we buying today? Well, 
we've only closed on one deal in 2019 because the bloody market's hot as hell, you know, and, and trying to find a good cracking deal right now is pretty hard. So in the multifamily space, and I'm sure in other commercial, you know, you're in self-storage, yep. but it's thin and thin. We're, so we're looking at closing our first deal here in the next few weeks. It'll be the first one of this year. Yeah, same same with me. But don't you know we were we were involved in deals or best and finals yeah. on deals all this year. But someone came and blew us out of the water because the yield is so attractive. I remember talking to someone the other day, a deal that we lost out onto in Houston. And I said, "Oh, how'd you how'd you win that?" And he's like, "Oh, well, our equity just doesn't want to lose money right now." I'm like, "Well, how the hell can I compete as a syndicator trying to give a return to investors that are you know can get a bit of cash flow and then a bit of upside on the back end?" I can't. Yeah. So as a manager of money, I need to go maybe look at different equity sources because maybe my retail investors have too much of a high threshold and we can get into sort of changing investor mindset. But that's, I'm seeing things are changing in the market. And and, and so what does that mean for going into 2020 and an election year and all that sort of good stuff? And it's, it's interesting because you're not the only other person who I've had this conversation with. People have called me up all the time who are other operators in other markets and other asset spaces and like, Reed, have, you, have you been doing deals this year? Like, no, nah, mate, I haven't. <laughs> yeah. It's, and so, well, most I, of the van in our market space, you know, when you're going and talking to large operators, particularly people that are in the space of real estate that are looking for cash flow, which we are, we are cash flow investors, we get equity. We like getting equity, but we have value at strategies, right? I'm looking to come in to improve everything from the operations to the finances, to the looks, the field, the management, make it more like a franchise. We like turning mom and pops around. Even with that forced cash flow appreciation, it's still hard to find deals. And we're finding that there's certain money out there that you're right. They almost just don't even care. It's like cash flow. We don't, their funds coming in and they're like, this is almost like balancing out risk. We're just right. trying not to lose money. We're trying mm-hmm. to have a hold here for five years, somewhere where it won't lose money, which I guess that's good for them. But for me as a personal investor, and I think for most investors, we need cash flow. Like we right. need to pay bills. I'm running a business. I got to make money. And most of our investors, they expect to money uh, or make money. Now, too, with that said, I think that becomes much harder the larger you go. So when you're in large assets, when I'm looking at a $15 million deal or a $50 million deal, the equity partners coming in to compete with me, the financiers, their thresholds are very low. I mean, you're talking about people that also invest in treasury bonds. This is a totally different game. And if they can put what they view an expert management company in, like we have um, some of the major uh, management companies that will come in and they view it as very low risk, they'll pay almost at any price. Because first of all, they're getting their money either at nothing or at, you're talking about the big players, their money's coming in on bonds at 2%. So for them, a five cap is a great deal. Their money's so cheap. And when you get into these big deals, you're competing with them. But now on the lower deals, I turn down I turn down lower deals that cash, you know, your IRR without ever selling. So you're basically your cash on cash is 20 plus percent. But I'm like, I don't have time to do a deal that small. It just mm. doesn't make sense for me. So it's it's right. weird. I actually find in these kind of environments that the smaller operator, they actually kind of have an edge because they're going to go do deals that none of us are ever going to do. I'm not going to go buy a storage facility for $600,000. I'm never going to do that. It makes no economic sense to my organization. So for me to compete, I'm buying deals, you know, the 10 up millions. 
and I'm competing with somebody totally different. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing in, in your marketplace, um, but we, yeah, we don't we don't look at that stuff. Uh, anything under a couple, anything under probably three or four million bucks, we don't look at anymore. And and it's it's because we for your listeners out there, when you start to have an investment fund like we do, is you do exactly the amount of same amount of work closing on a four million dollar deal as you do on a forty five million dollar deal. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the paperwork's, you know, talked about that constant before. That's the same. They've got to get the PPM, got to get inspections, got to make sure I've got investors' education. That the varying part is going to be obviously the amount of equity. But as the more deals you do and the more returns you start giving investors, the more people come into your network and into your sphere and they want to, they want to be more and do more with you. Now, the other side of it is, you know, the overpaying. So what happens when we come to a you know recession and you know mm-hmm. all the boat you know everyone rises with with the tide but when the tide goes out who's going to be left with their pants down and who's going to be left looking mm-hmm. naked and so us as operators and and fiduciary responsibilities for investors capital we've got to make sure that we're looking at that downside and thus you saying you've only just closed on one deal this year i've only closed on one deal and no, no, i'm not we are probably not we're in the same sort of category we're not doing any more than probably one deal a quarter 25 million bucks or a quarter, we don't have the bandwidth, and nor do we want to grow that fast. We just yep. want a slow and steady, you know, incremental growth. But that's still, you know, between fifty and hundred million dollars worth of assets a year. This year has been a bit of a slow year. I don't know what's going to be next year, but it's it's definitely there's there's in the tea leaves and writing on the wall that you got to be careful with what you're buying right now, and it's got to be a value add. And we've changed our model a little bit in terms of how we pay our investors. We've got a two tiered structure, which has been really well received, and that allows people to have a bit of cash flow, but also have the upside appreciation. So. Yeah, it, and and in general, the you know the last since the recession, commercial multi commercial just real estate in general has had a huge resurgence, and people have doubled, triple, quadrupled their money in three to five years. And I, I know where I'm from in Australia. If you double your money in ten years, you're making a really good return. And so people are freaking the hell out, going, "Oh gosh, I can't double my money in three years. That's a crap deal." Well, hang on, we just may be going to a bit more of a plateau. And maybe you're going to double your money in eight years and you haven't lifted a finger. I think that's pretty bloody good. It might not cash flow for the ter- first two or three years. Okay, but it's going to cash flow the long term. And there's a lot of this get rich quick type of money that seems to be impatient on the retail side. And it's our job as you know, podcast hosts, but also you know, managers of money to re-educate our investors. And you know, we're stopped taking on unaccredited investors as of last deal because just, we don't want to deal with those types of investors because yeah. they may not, not that there's anything wrong with them, but just they may not be as in touch with what true wealth is. Right, and you want to grow that wealth preservation, and to me, paying you seven percent pref on a hundred thousand dollar investment does that fundamentally change your day to day living? I don't think so. I think if I double your money over five years or seven years from a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand dollars, that's going to fundamentally change your wealth. So having those types of conversations, those difficult conversations, saying maybe this is not the space or the time for you to be investing in real estate right now because the cash flow might not be there immediately from day one, but it's going to come. We know because we've done it before, but Oh, I want, I want, I want eight percent from day one. Well, yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, so, and it's yeah. interesting too. Is this we reach this economic plateau? But you are seeing a shift in how people view, and there's a lot of frustration. And I think that's leading people to chase scarier deals, mm-hmm. um, deals where they're more complex. We've seen deals come across the table where there's large promises, but there's so many moving parts that it's becoming difficult to underwrite. And we always walk away from those deals because if we're like, if it's not a clear cut picture to us, you're not embedding in risk that is inherent in those deals to right. compensate for that kind of return. We're seeing a lot of that. And, uh, you know, I, I like to think of this idea that 
people need to view when investing is you can increase, you know, a lot of people are viewing as increasing their wealth vertically, right? Like Mm -hmm. I get this big hit and it's a win. And all Mm -hmm. of a sudden I am a multimillionaire, right? Whereas you need to look at increasing your wealth and your position horizontally by doing little deals over an extended period of time, which lead into bigger deals and compound your money over the length of a of a larger time period. You need to be more like a decade, right? Uh, yeah, like exactly, like a decade. We're not talking about two years stuff. That doesn't happen. It takes a long time of working hard, allocating capital, growing that capital, returning that capital, and growing it more. And the mm-hmm. more risk you embed in to try to achieve these unrealistic things, the more often you're going to lose, which just destroys your ability to compound. And I think right. people need to understand that. When you're gambling, it doesn't matter how many times you win, you have one loss and it wipes out all your winnings. And so just viewing it as lower base hits over an extended period of time, before you know it, you're at home base. And uh, I, I do, I feel like you're exactly right. There's the retail investors right now, they're frustrated. And, and because the cap rates aren't there, right? Yeah. Like you, you, your cash flow comes from the delta between interest rates and cap and the in-place cap rate, right? And you're, if you're buying something at a five and a half cap and you're getting a 4% interest rate, there's going to be a little bit of cash flow, but it might not be 8%. Right, where back three, four years ago, you could get four, 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 four and a half percent interest rates, but you're buying it at seven or seven and a half percent cap rate. That's you know three hundred basis points. You're going to get a, a nice slug of money from from day one. So you've got to look at those sort of things as as an investor. But I also think you've got to look at where you're investing. Like if you're buying in a seven or eight percent cap rate right now, market. Well, yeah, is that going to go in the in the downturn, right? And and, and those, you know, what what we're looking at our thesis is that we're doubling down on true growth markets, stuff that's transitioned into going to be compressed cap rates for decades. I come, you know, in Australia and Hong Kong and Europe and London, you know, there's commercial real estate where it's been sub three percent for decades because yeah. the supply is limited, the demand is high, barriers to entry into those markets are very high, and that's. You, st- you know, you go and do a hundred dollar rental pop on uh, on on a three cap. You, it's going to obviously up your your your, IR, your NOI and your overall value compared to a seven or eight cap. And that, that's on this. That is more of a sophisticated understanding of what true wealth is. And I'm not saying that everyone should go out and do that because you are inverted. And in, if you've got money at four percent and you've got a cap rate at three, you're going to have to come out of your own pocket mm-hmm. to feed the mortgage. But what I'm getting at is that we are seeing a trend in America in the second tertiary markets where historically there've been cap rates in the 7, 8, 9% cap rates they're now compressed down to 6 to 4% and people are people are nervous. You've got to look at how interest rates are trending, are we trending to zero or are we going to go back upwards and the pendulum's going to swing back the other way. My view is that and this is in my opinion I believe there might be a swing back slightly. For example, a market that's now a four and a half cap or a five cap that maybe 20 years ago was a six or a seven cap. I don't think you're going to get back to that six or seven cap. I think you might recorrect a little bit to maybe five, five and a half at max six, but that whole pendulum swing back the other way. And that's because cost of capital is really cheap right now. And you're still going to have big funds like REITs that are coming and trying to chase yield. They're looking at, to your point before, the insurance companies where they're like, we're just going to mitigate our risk over our portfolios. We don't care what really we're paying when we, we you know, our, our investors are only get 2% in, in, in bonds. We can pay them four. And of course, we're going to go and overpay and beat us guys who are trying to feed our investors six to 8% pref. When you're talking the cost of money and the compression of cap rates, a lot of those things are not changing. They're, right. they're just not going to change. And you have these short-term 
debt cycles and long-term debt cycles. We've had two long-term debt cycles in the last 150 years, right? We had the Great Depression in 2008. And I feel like there's so many people that are waiting for 2008 to come again. When right. They're going to be shocked when it doesn't happen for another 50, 60 years. And in right. that time, like, you know, you have, I feel like there's a lot of millennials that are like, oh, I'm going to buy my house in the next crash. Well, mm. if you would have said that in anywhere outside 2003 to 2008, you would have lost. Mm-hmm. You're talking for almost a 100-year span that if you would have said that, you would have basically lost. You would have never been able to buy, ever. So if you bought in 95 and then 2008 happened in America, you were still better off. You still right. should have bought in 95 and not waited, right, to 2008. And we're now 10, what, 10 years plus, and people are years. still waiting. And I'm like, yeah. it's not going to happen. We're not going to the 2008 prices again. And this realignment after receiving such massive yields after mm-hmm. a epic recession, I think you're absolutely right. There's unprecedented expectations to where capital, they have to understand, capital is still almost as cheap as it was. Right. In fact, yeah. in some cases, it's cheaper. And yet the institutions now have more money than they've ever had. REITs have more money. Their money's cheaper than ever had. And their demand for yield is higher than it's ever been. Those things compress long-term cap rates. They do not allow them to rise, except for in risky markets where they don't want to be, where you can get more fluctuation. But as a buyer, what what are you underwriting as far as risk goes into that. So I, I, I'm 100% agreeance with you. I think you nailed it on the head. Um, you know, you're talking about an industry of self-storage where we were investing, everything you could have bought was a 10 cap plus <laughs> when it was before 2008 because nobody would buy in self-storage. That's right. down to a, now it's trading at the same as apartments, which is crazy right. to me because it's way more risky than housing or apartments are because they're month to month, no contracts, on and on and on. But that's never turning around. Right. Right. The self-storage now is a large asset class that Wall Street plays in. And because that institutional money has come in, it's compressed the cap rates down from what used to be double digit to five caps. And it's never returning. That's never going to go back because of the See money. That plays. The bag, right? Yeah, it's, it's done. It's, it's over. And if you're waiting to buy good self-storage assets, right, and it, in at an 11 cap, you know, it's, you not could, gonna it's not going to happen. And so the, the the next question people always ask is, well, hey, how do we, where do we get yield from? Like, well, you might need to look at a more of a distressed deal that is going to take two or three years to get to a stabilization because you're buying it, you, you're really truly making money when you buy. So what happens if we have a recession in those next two or three years and you're then underwater because you, you don't have the, you know, the rents to where they need to be to get you to pay the mortgage? Okay, well, there's a risk. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, or you go and put it in a stabilized deal and you have, it's more of a longer term play and maybe in three or four years time that, that, that cash flow starts to bump up and you've got to look at that long-term seven or eight year return on your capital. And again, it's, this is where I understand the frustration of investors, but you have to understand where we're adjusting to the market and that you have investors have to adjust their expectations as well. It's it, we're not, we're not, we're not 2012 anymore. No, it's my belief that if you're trying to get into big deals, Like if you're trying to go into larger deals and you're an individual, you need to go with good operators today because the risk is so high. Now, if you're wanting to get really good high yield and returns and you're that you're going down market, you're doing much smaller deals that are quicker. The value add is there. You're going on the edges of hot markets where you can pick up small deals and turn around. I still think you can get great yields out of smaller deals. And there's this just 
it's it's either being missed because there's more volume to it. But when you're going after large deals, I, I really do think you're going with, you have to go with someone that knows what they're doing or else you're going to get in trouble quick. So where are you going from there though? Now we're talking about you're, you're doing deals. You've got one deal this, this year. You've had this whirlwind ride over the last, whatever, six years. You've learned obviously so much you got all these deals you you went from nothing to not only just financially free but you've got a huge portfolio that let's just be honest most people would only dream of having and uh, you're out here telling people they can do it too yep it's what def- are you it's, telling it's, how how are, how do people yeah, do it today yeah so it's, it's definitely harder right it's, it goes back to now don't get me wrong i i started in the syndication business in 2014 but prior to that we was you know getting involved in in my own deals and making my own mistakes so how do you get involved today and there's still deals that need to be uh, can be had it's now doubling down on those those broker relationships is doubling down on okay instead of underwriting 10 deals and finding the one in 10 you might have to be underwriting 30 deals to find the one in 30 or one in 50. And so you need to doubling down on the ter- on terms of your deal pipeline to understand where that deal is and, and try to not to be stretching to make a deal work. You have to be patient. Patience is the hardest part in real estate investing, particularly with social media today, because everyone's, oh, I'm, you know, sitting in front of Lamborghini or blah, blah. Yeah. I don't I know Lamborghini, but you see yeah. people who do that. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and they have that sort of, oh, I need to be where they are. Patience, 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 patience. Things will happen. You just have to go through the unsexy stuff of underwriting, 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 and don't stop underwriting. Underwrite everything, and you know it, it might not work for you. Okay, that's fine. Give feedback to the, the broker. Do it again. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. It's gonna take time. My first deal on my own, I underwrote sixty deals before I got deal number one, and that was that was a combination of trying to find a good deal, but also trying to build that relationship with brokers. So if you are trying to get started it giving feedback to the broker on a commercial deal whether it be multifamily or self-storage or mobile home parks give that feedback to so they know what where you stand and it's that cons- consistency of giving that feedback over an extended period of time i'm talking 12 to two, 12 months to 24 months that you can then start building that relationship and that that trust with them so they're going to start sending you more and more deals that we now see deals before they hit the market because we've spent time underwriting deals. Now those deals might still not be deals, right? Yeah. Like, but yeah. I'm still seeing deals before the, the maybe the rest of the public are. We're spending a lot of time doubling down on our broker relationships. So we we know where deals are. It's about if the sellers want to sell us those deals. Yeah. <laughs> so we've identified a couple of deals actually in the markets we're in that we know they're big institutional buyers and sellers and we've made offers, preemptive offers because the brokers bought it to us where they've had whispers with BOVs, which is basis of value prior to hitting the market and you know we've been able to tie some stuff up before they have and just you know closed closed really easily but you got to be spending time doubling down on your brand doubling down on your message building investor database and then also developing broker relationships and continuing to underwrite deals and it may not be sexy but that's where we are in today's market and as i said we've we've, we've easily underwritten 60 or 70 deals this year we've probably in, you know put in best and finals on four of them Notice uh, six or seven of them, and we lost out on all of them except for those last ones. So that is solid advice right there. I I, <laughs> I have nothing to add to that. That was perfect. I think that's what people needed to hear. People need to learn more from you. Follow your journey. Where can they go? Where yep. would you tell people to follow you? And how how do they learn more? Head over to easiest way, easiest ways. Head over to readgoosens.com. That's R-E-E-D-G-O-O-S-S-E-N-S.com. You can check out the books, the podcasts, and blogs. 
if you're ever in LA and you want to grab lunch or a beer and just talk shop, you can hit me up at info, info at readgoosens.com. And I'm always, always willing to talk, to talk shop and chat. So, so yeah. That's awesome. And we'll put all that in the show notes for you, everybody. But thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate your wisdom and hearing your story. It's not only inspiring, it's really helpful for people that are looking to understand better to how to, how to grow their wealth and achieve financial freedom. So thank you very much. Thanks, AJ. Much, much appreciated. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Cashflow to Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to us for more and feel free to check us out at Cashflow with the number 2freedom.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook. And also, if you could leave us a good review, that would really help us continue to build out our content and our community. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.